Welcome, good people, to Rendezvous with Jamie McGlue. Here we are, all the lads and lasses um, and pets, although they're probably not listening to me, but they're here. Aliens, possibly plants for sure, um, like my little friend here, a plant, or my uh, notorious slash famous uh, ancient Egyptian companion, uh, uh, Frederick, I mean, uh, Ramses. So we're all, we're all here hanging about. How are you? You having a good time? I hope so. If not, just remember what is the problem right now? Nothing. Exactly. It all requires thinking about a story of past and future. And ultimately, um, it's not real. Uh, I don't mean to offend you. You can be going through some intense things, but ultimately it's in our power to have peace over everything. So while we're being at peace, why don't we think about politics and uh, sovereignty? So the big picture politics is the topic today. I'm back in my studio slash uh, well, studio apartment, I guess. Um, how glamorous. I can call it a studio. Nice. Just a bit deceptive, but you know. Um, I was traveling, which was lovely. So a little bit of music, and then we're going to talk about basically, you know, how and why and where do we draw the borders of a state? Like why is it wrong for Catalonia to be independent or Scotland to be independent, but it's okay for Luxembourg to be a little city and it's its own country, or the Vatican, where I just was, to be a little country and it's like 100, what is it, 123 acres or something numerologically significant. Um, so no, I think it's 132 hectares and it's, um, no, what, yeah, something like that. Some sort of mysterious number. Um, so how big should a state be? Should we all be one big state? Uh, are better states, are bigger states better inherently, you know, um, did the Europeans intentionally chop up Africa into like a hundred different countries to keep it powerless? Would it be better if they were bigger? We're going to talk about that. Also, um, the balance of power between the state and the individual. So how much power should the state have? Um, should it have no power? Should it have a lot of power? Should it have kind of somewhere in the middle? And there should be rights which it can't infringe upon um, uh, unless it really wants to. Um, and then uh, what's the third on the list? Um, and what, let me check my list if I want to know what's third on it. Uh, <clears throat> Oh yeah, corruption and oligarchy. Remember that? But that doesn't happen anymore, right? Not since we're all very afraid. There's no corruption when you're afraid. It's only when you're calm, then you might notice some corruption. Um, otherwise, it's Big Brother just helping helping us out, doing us a solid. Um, so corruption and oligarchy and how to address that, why it happens and how we can kind of try to counteract it. Mostly, I guess, by being aware of how it happens. And then naturally, solutions emerge. If you're not aware of where something's coming from or how it's happening, you won't be able to find a solution, will you? Unless you're incredibly lucky and you stumble upon it out of the millions of options. Um, uh, fourth, finally, uh, like world peace and prosperity. Like, so we have, if we ha once we know where all the borders should be and how should the state be relating to its own citizens and how do we keep the state honest to its intentions, um, then how do we keep all those states interacting kind of, you know, peacefully with each other. 
So that's the idea. Now let's play a little song. What should we play? Uh, something about politics. Hmm. Uh, something, this is called Politics, I Love You. Politics, I love you. Don't you love me too? Why are you always trying to put me in jail? I only wanted to be like a snail Squished upon your righteous boot Like 1984 all over again But the brave new world has come And the soma's flowing like the setting sun And I don't want to tell you what's true I just want to say I love you Politics, my friend I love how you govern me so hard You govern me so strong But at the end of the day It's either right or wrong We can only use our minds to say So much and anyway There is a balance, sure Between anarchy and an open door On the one hand and order and Chinese-style fascism Who knows who's right, just like friends We gotta work it out all over again We run our experiments, we try our best And in the end, it's politics, my friend I love you just for your trying My patience? Okay, there's the song. Very good. Here we are. Okay. So, I should probably have a watch on for this shenanigans, given that I don't have all day, actually, uh, and I assume neither do you. So why don't we make a pact to keep this snappy? Um, where should borders be? Okay. Well, look at that celestial light coming in here. Oh, that's very nice. Um, so it's literally starlight. It is celestial. Oh. Um, so let's see. I mean, I would say basically the borders of a state, they're largely drawn by history and just kind of happenstance and who had power a long time ago. Like say, for example, but that's not, that's description, not prescription. That's not what should be. But just to say where the borders have come from as a starting point, um, say in Europe, okay, where I am. Uh, so the Roman Empire fell recently have you heard the western empire fell like kind of a little while ago um and so then you know had this one huge state and everyone's roman right you had slaves you had um i guess citizens i don't know if they were were all citizens non were all non-slave citizens or was it citizens like a higher level i'm not sure i think they're all citizens but you had plebs or plebs um and uh patricians the more upper class but whatever you had a state, right? And then uh, it collapsed and you have all these different bar barbarian kingdoms. So you have all these Germanic tribes that conquered the Roman Empire in the West. They all set up their own kingdoms. Basically, the guy who had the most sticks, the most swords, the guy who was the strongest or the most willing to control and use violence ended up controlling people and saying, all right, I get to sit at the top. I get all this gold and women and you know land and I get to do what I want um, and feel really big. I have a, can satisfy my ego a lot. Um, probably that's what was happening most of the time. Maybe there's some people where they're like, look, I'm really capable and strong and someone's got to control 
set uh, boundaries and control this society. Otherwise, bad guys will. There may have been some good people um, taking control also. Um, but uh, yeah, so basically the people who could, you know, basically the biggest gangs became the government. Um, and, you know, maybe if they could eventually over, you know, their son wasn't as strong, they lose control, someone else takes over. And, you know, maybe they would split the kingdom between their sons. They go, all right, three sons, you get this third of the kingdom, you get that third, you get that third. And then maybe their sons would each get, they'd have three sons each and they would each have a third. So now the original kingdom's in nine parts. And then maybe one of them is kind of incompetent and the other grandchild just takes them over and then it takes over a bit more. And then maybe you'd have, you know, they're fighting amongst themselves. Same thing's happening all over the place. So you'd have these splinterings that would happen. But then basically you'd have people who are just the most powerful people take over, you know? And um, so there's no, and then the normal people are just living life. The government's not doing anything for them, really. They're just like the powerful people um, taking, taxing them, taking a certain percentage of their food or their pottery or whatever they make, or else the gold, which they translate those products into or services into. And so they're just taking their stuff, basically. That's what the government was doing for ages. It's like the mafia. Basically, the mafia just ran the place. And then um, uh, eventually, and they're just fighting amongst the mafias, having their mafia wars. That's basically what the feudal system was, you know. The aristocracy weren't really, you know. They, uh, but then they would build things. They would build bridges, build roads. I mean, um, build churches. So there was a certain contribution, I guess. But, you know, these things could have been done voluntarily by the population. Oh, let's build a temple. We have all this extra wealth. Why don't we? And that did used to happen as well alongside the state stuff, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, but this, to give the devil his due, there was some contribution from the state even at that point. But mostly they were like, basically, you know, we're just taking care of ourselves. You give us part of your wealth and you take care of yourselves, most of it. Um, or try to while we basically rob you blind. Um, then, you know, a, a certain amount, though, over time, when these units got bigger and bigger and more stable, um, and through, I guess, through technological innovation, improvement of communications, and just general, the seasons of history, things getting less intense, um, more perhaps cultural stability, idea narratives getting more strong of, like, this is what we're doing, maybe religions kind of enforcing a certain stability of purpose and agreement. Um, or just other factors. Many, uh, well, look at this microphone, it's shining. Ah. Um, so uh, you, for example, you had France in like the kind of west of Europe breaking off from the rest of the Holy Roman Empire, which was this huge empire of the Germanic tribes. And so then it's separate to the others. Well, I don't know, exactly know why that was, but you could say perhaps the language was changing. I don't really know actually, but over time though, you had the, they were speaking their language diverged and they were speaking French. And the people in the east were speaking like dialects of German and the French. They had many dialects too, but you could see there's a certain due to languages. That's where you start to get these nations. I'd say I say largely um, as an extension of tribalism. Um, when you've got a, a certain language, that would be a pretty good case for where to draw the boundaries of um, this becomes prescriptive, right? Where should we draw the boundaries? Well, people who share a language makes sense that they would be one nation, right? They can communicate better. It's hard to get people to organize together and everyone's got differences of opinions. People have big egos half the time, you know. So how do we do manage that? Well, if we all speak in the same language, it's going to be easier to avoid unnecessary conflict. So all the French can work together a little bit more easily than the French can work with the Germans just because there's going to be um, unnecessary miscommunication. Um, 
And, you know, but then again, Austria speaks German and they're not part of Germany. Um, so why should they be separate? Well, you might say, well, they've got a different history. And you go, okay, fair enough. Maybe they've got a different kind of um, a story. And they might say, we feel like we're different. We identify as a different people. Say so we're, you know, or Italy, you know, apparently I was just learned there's more municipalities in Italy than China. And, you know, the population of Italy is like 60 million or something. And China's like 1.3 or 4 uh, billion. So that's pretty crazy. But it seems like that the Italians, for whatever reason, perhaps in the splintering of the Roman Empire, this advanced state, this is just my hypothesis, but maybe there's this advanced state and then it's kind of splintered. And so you have, and they weren't, they had to be on their own. And then you have this kind of educated society kind of um, becoming more localized and so uh, atomized. And then maybe when they're reunited later on when the seasons of history changed, they were like, yeah, well, we're not the same as you. You know, we're, we've got our own kind of thing. We refuse to be put in the same unit as you. So we've, we're going to have our own local government. I don't know. That'll just be a theory. But nonetheless, uh, you know, they all speak Italian, although it's like dialects and different accents and things. But, you know, England, they're all like one country, you know, and they've got these different accents and dialects even, or sort of dialects. Um, so, you know, but I guess you can, we need a, at the end of the day, drawing boundaries is arbitrary, right? So, and, you know, I don't have like a solution here. I'm just thinking out loud. Hopefully this can be useful to you, you know, for you by thinking it through together, you know, um, or using my thoughts to then um, bootstrap you to your own thoughts that can, you know, kind of, hopefully eclipse and supersede my thoughts. That would be nice, you know, and then you can let me know in the comments so I can reap those beautiful rewards and improve my own thinking. But, um, so yeah, uh, languages seems to be one potential uh, reason to have a boundary of a certain place. So, you know, for example, Catalonia, they might make the case, yeah, we should be independent because of that. But then, you know, you have other parts of Spain where they're like, yeah, we're Galicia, we have our own little language, but um, we don't want to be independent. We're happy with autonomy, you know, kind of semi-autonomy um, within this state of Spain. Um, or you have like, you know, um, uh, let's say like uh, England, um, Wales, you know, certain number of people still speak Welsh in Wales. Not a huge number, I don't think. But um, they're not asking to be independent in general, I think. But then uh, Scotland, most people there speak English and they want a lot of them want to be independent. So... I guess they would feel that they've just got a different culture or identity or history, but it seemed largely to be based upon culture, right? And I would say culture is largely an outgrowth of language. So language would be the basic building block, like try getting the Japanese to be part of China. They're going to be like, what are you talking about? It, the language thing, I think, is just, it's too much of a, a tribal line like that people aren't willing to cross. So that probably just isn't going to work. Um, they might be part of some supranational organization, which like, for example, the European Union has kind of done that. But even that, you know, you have people where they're like, mm, a bit leery of it, um, more than if everyone was speaking the same language. It would be like, oh, of course, we'll fit together. Um, but nonetheless, you might have people where they've got different, they've got the same language, but they've got cultural differences. Where like, look, in the way you, because culture is not all just, same like oh yeah it's culture it's like oh you go to the cinema or go to you know a concert or something like some airy fairy thing it's like culture is very real and practical it's what are your um beliefs about what is and what should be you know so 
you could call that beliefs and values, or you could just say your beliefs about what is and your beliefs about what should be. Um, what is good and bad? What is right? Um, what is good and bad? Or you could say right and wrong. And uh, what is true and false? So, uh, yeah. So, you know, different. maybe in some cultures they think children should be educated really strictly. Um, other cultures they think, you know, it should be more relaxed, etc. Or people should be able to drink when they're young or people should be allowed to have abortions or not. Or people um, should be allowed to take drugs recreationally if they want or not. And so it makes sense if there's cultural divisions where, say there's, you know, a certain area where there's 100 million people and you could draw a boundary somewhere where you're going to be able to say, well, people agree much more on this side, in this area. Like if we drew a line here and all the people on this side, they mostly agree 80% of the things. The other line, yeah, 80% of the things they agree. If we take away that line and put them all together, suddenly the mutual agreement is 60%. That seems like that's going to cause problems for cohesion of decision-making. And so, so long as people can be just and respect the non-aggression principle of not hurting other people and just live and let live, potentially that would be a good, um, I guess, um, marker or a, a good um, criteria for nationhood is where is there a culture, um, kind of a cultural homogeneity or uh, a general agreement of like um, what, of uh, for, in regards to the basic um, principles of the society. If there's not, then you might say, well, yeah, but, you know, there's a history of them being together. They shouldn't be allowed to be seceding. Yeah, but w what would be the harm of that? You know, if there's a certain group, and I'm not advocating anyone seceding or in, specific, in particular, but just saying if there was, a, a say, a 10% of a country which had a significantly different way of thinking, and if those are, it's not just wishful thinking, it's actually a real thing, like they just see things differently, then what would be the harm and wouldn't it be beneficial to let them kind of go their own way, make their own choices. If they make a bunch of mistakes, then they might come scurrying back with the tail between the legs and say, can we rejoin? Or they might just start copying that other country. And in which case they become the same thing. doesn't matter if technically they're not the same. They basically are the same. Austria looks kind of similar to Germany to me, although I'm sure there are many differences, but um, uh, you know, and so, or, you know, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, different countries technically, um, and yet, uh, pretty similar, you know, you go across the border and people talk pretty similarly, similar accent and, you know, some things are different, but much would be the same. So, uh, but yeah, so why, so the question is why do, you know, why, uh, should a country be small or big or where should the, the borders be? One traditional argument, so there's that argument of like cultural identity and linguistic identity being like the basis, right? But then, of course, that's that would kind of make you wonder what the British, et cetera, were doing when they were like in Africa or whatever. Apparently, I've heard people say over and over, I don't know if it's true, but um, I don't know, I would assume it's probably true, is, um, you know, they drew national boundaries between, like through the middle of like linguistic groups like or, or and cultural groups. And in um, the Middle East also, like, oh, yeah, this we have a bunch of Sunni and Shia Muslims in this area. Yeah, we'll put them together. Like, would you not want to give them their own state so that they can kind of make decisions and, you know? Um, now, you might say, oh, yeah, we're trying to put everyone together so that we're forcing them to negotiate and talk. But, yeah, but, I mean, perhaps, or maybe that's just a, a recipe for strife and a lack of progress. And, you know, maybe if you have 50% of the people saying... Uh, 
if you had a, a deadlock, a deadlocked parliament where people can't really make decisions, it makes it hard for you to make to experiment with policies. Whereas I think if people kind of are all on board with, or whether it's in a group, you know, just a small group of, oh, we're gonna we've got an artistic project, and it's five people want to do this, five people disagree, you might just never do anything. Whereas if you're all kind of, you know, they create two different groups, they might be able to experiment, come back and say, this is what we've got to show for our philosophy and our points of view, and um, yeah, like whose is better, you know, and what do we think, and maybe we want to do both, or it's food for thought, you know, um, so. There's that, um, and but you might say, well, if you've got different groups, uh, if we put you know linguistic or cultural groups in different states, um, neat little states. So say we divided them up, so all the you know speakers of this language are together, and the speakers of that language are together, and all the you know in general. Of course, it won't be possible because there's blending, so much blending. But in general, there are big patterns that you could make rough approximations where ninety percent of the population is homo homogenous in a way. Then you might say, um, apart from the thing people might say, oh yeah, but there's less diversity. There'll be, be, you know, less interesting decisions or less wise decisions. I would say, yeah, that's not really. We're not really sure about that. I think that's something we need to test. What would be good is if we can run experiments through history, is to control the variables. Have uh, a bunch of nations where they're got multiculturalism, and this is what we got in the West, I guess, and then a bunch of other nations where it's rather homogenous. And I think that's what we have largely in Asia. And so I think we're going to be seeing this century. Uh, it's going to be a bit of uh, experiment. But I mean, there's so many other variables, so it's hard to, you're not really controlling all the variables like you should in an experiment. But nonetheless, um, let's hope I don't get like a sunburn in like a V, a V of power pointing up to my pineal gland here. Seems like that's what's happening. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, the light should be absorbed into my mind and clarify my words for you good people. <coughs> So, um, but there is the argument, I was going to say, like that, or if you put these groups together in their separate little borders, then they're going to start fighting the other ones. They're going to say, oh, those people are evil, let's go to war with them. I think, you know, like we can't jump to that conclusion. I think uh, why does war happen is not an entirely clear question. Partly, I think it's just, yeah, egos being like, oh, you're different to us, let's attack you because you make us uncomfortable. Or maybe people is trying to get more power over themselves saying, hey, don't ask why I'm stealing all your money. Look at those different people over there. And as a way to rally people either to defend yourself from corruption allegations or whatever, or even to get into office to say, look, I think, you know, whatever drumming up this sense of nationalism or, you know, tribalism. Um, but then there's also war for like economic reasons. Oh, they've got these resources. We kind of would like them. Why don't we just go take them? power, personal aggrandizement, and national aggrandizement. Um, and then uh, potentially also people who just like causing carnage. You know, they've got a, a, what Eckhart Tolle, or Tolle would call like a, the pain body, you know, like strong pain body. They just, they just want to feed off some pain and suffering and maybe they're, they're, they don't like that they've got this feeling and they're going to project that onto other people. You're causing my problems, not me. and My immature relationship with my own mind and emotions how dare you? And then maybe if people have enough power, they might even, instead of just complaining about people or gossiping, they might actually try to, you know, lead their country to war against another people. So these things can happen. Um, but I think, you know, like it's, again, that's an open question. Is that more likely or more or less likely if the, the is it more likely that is more war more likely to occur between two states or within a state 
that if you have two groups, if you put them within the one state, is it more likely to have sectarian violence and civil war um, or just like an unhealthy, unhappy society? Um, is that more likely or uh, than that they would go to war if you separated them into two states? Intuitionally, I feel like if you separated them, it would be easier for them to kind of follow a certain path and feel a sense of stability and independence and sovereignty. And then war would be able to be avoided by just in general, like um, negotiation between people. Same thing as like, you know, friend groups, like it, how we manage relationships in general in society is not through power, but it's through um, communication and mutual self-interest. Thank God, it turns out that the best way to be selfish is to cooperate most of the time. And so that's how did we get here? How did humans evolve? Well, it turns out working together, we can get, we can increase the, the size of the pie significantly. And so those people think about it. How would we get here if it was otherwise? If humans were to be more selfish than cooperative uh, or more competitive than cooperative, um, you know, and so their selfishness was um, acted out in terms of just more, more significantly more competition than cooperation then how would we have all these different groups and how would we have even gotten here? Like, I mean, there is a, a significant amount of warfare and tr conflict, true, but I think it, it seems like through history, from what I understand, um, that in general, you, the units of organization are getting bigger and bigger and they were doing that even before states were powerful enough to enforce it and it was just happening kind of, I believe, naturally because it was in everyone's self-interest. Like, if you kind of start... Trading with more people, you can make more money, like specialization, you know, instead of 10 families in a village, everyone makes clothes, everyone grows food, everyone builds houses. Why, okay, I will grow the food, you can make the clothes, you can build the houses, you can grow, you can do other things. You can start studying mathematics and or making, um, recording stories and writing stories. And we share these things, you know, we trade these things. And so everyone gets the same amount of stuff as before except it's now a better quality because we're all focusing up more time on it. So um, instead of being generalists, we're being specialists. And so, but we still have the same amount of stuff, but it's higher quality that allows us to, you know, feedback, positive feedback loop. So, and seems like through that, that very principle of um, uh, reciprocity and interconnectedness, interconnectedness um, helping us advance has caused the units of social organization and political organization to expand in size over time. Um, so, um, I would say, yeah, it's not just a matter of power. Oh my God, this light of power, like causing states, you know, or the bigger guy, the bigger stick conquers the other. That was definitely happening as well. But that would often, you know, apparently in chimpanzees, among them, um, tyrants don't manage very well. Um, they, you know, the biggest chimp can kind of dominate everyone. Um, but then they're going to be short-lived because soon enough, the next two biggest ones are going to team up. And, you know, two two chimps that are, you know, 80% his size are going to team up and now 160% versus 100%. And they're just going to tear them apart. Um, and it seems like in general, what it, the longest-lived, most effective way to wield power is reciprocity. Um, and so to give people a reason, you take your position at the top of the pyramid you need to take care of the people under you enough so that they allow you to stay there. Um, and so it's just natural. You're still dominating them, but there's a balance between competition and cooperation, which is that sweet spot where you, you can have sustainable control.
And so it seems like that's kind of a lot of what would happen uh, with states getting bigger is you would have these people exercising power, but in general, they you know there's a limit to how much they can just go total Rambo on the population and on other populations um, before they would just rebel and re splinter off again. Um, and so a lot of it seems to be this technological advancement um, allowing shrinking distances through roads and communications, you know, like phones and um, letters and paper and writing and books, ideas being able to move because someone instead of someone talking and then they die and their ideas are gone, except passed down and misunderstood and misinterpreted or whatever by other people, it's like, oh, they've written them down and we can read their ideas. We're like basically listening to them directly, um, et cetera. So technology allows this um, shrinking of the world through um, interconnectedness of ideas, of products, information, um, whatever, able to get to places faster. So you could go defend a city with your garrison <coughs> if the roads are better, which is what Romans the Romans did. They were very good at it. First thing they would do apparently was just build a network of roads so they could maintain control over the place. But um, so, yeah, it seems so uh, that these units of organization are getting bigger and bigger. But it's a question of like how big should they be? Because, I mean, like uh, Scotland is pretty big actually, you know. And back in the day, there was a dozen kingdoms, you know, or like, you know, tribal groups um, being independent. And these days it's all one thing and it looks small to us, but it's pretty big. Um and then, or you look at France and compared to China, it's tiny. So why isn't China just 12 things the size of France? Why, why do we draw the boundaries there? Largely, I say it's arbitrary. It's due to military might um, in combination with linguistic and cultural identity, some balance thereof. Now, you have little things like microstates, you know, like Monaco seems to be doing fine. Liechtenstein seems to be fine, you know, so... What would the world look like if it was just a bunch of these microstates? So, so apart from you know the descriptive thing of where have they come from, let's think about what would be ideal. Um, yeah, so you could say oh it increases the chance of war, but I don't think so. It's possible, but I think I think actually what um, what limits the chance of war is not like having some superstructure that everyone's connected to or having bigger countries. So in the bigger countries, it can just go to war. You know, like I'm. And the military-industrial complex in America, unfortunately, seems to be pretty keen on war with Russia, which is completely freaking insane. Um, what what good does war do? You know, like um, can we not just negotiate? You know, anyway, that's another story. But um, that you know, certain people they make a lot of money from war, and so they um, and they'll probably instead of going, well, I'm doing it for the money. They probably want to tell their wife that they're the good guy, right? So they probably want to, they'll easily find other reasons of, oh, it's just the right thing to do. These other people are bad guys, you know, um, and selective, you know, um, memory, um, confirmation bias, subconscious prejudice, all these things will allow us to focus on a certain narrative, which is convenient for us and not convenient for the other people. And they will do the same to us, you know, that's where a lot of wars come from. And if you look at the present war in Ukraine, unfortunately, I would say, there's um, a, a lot of propaganda and a lot of misinformation and a lot of selective memory and um, subconscious prejudice and uh, confirmation bias. And it's actually, if you go into it, like, I mean, I don't think uh, either side's perfect, but it's not what you'll see in the, probably the main, you know, you'd commonly see in the newspaper in the West, what I think is actually happening. There's a lot more going on. And I think both sides are probably guilty of uh, 
things. But hey, that's often, that's usually the case, isn't it? You know, and so instead of saying you're guilty and we're good, why don't we say, look, okay, no one's perfect. How do we get peace, right? How do we find that? So that would just a little aside, but I would say solutions focused. That would be the way I think, you know, makes the most sense. Um, forgiveness, you know, turn the other cheek, go, look, we can let people keep suffering in order to be on a righteous crusade, or we can go, doesn't matter who's right or wrong. What is the fastest way to get peace and justice? Why wouldn't we do that? No matter who that benefits more. That's what, you know, ultimately that's going to benefit the people most. Who cares which government comes out on top? You know, the main difference isn't between countries, but between the people and the government, you know, in every country. That's the that's a much bigger difference between the ruling elite and the common people. That difference is much more significant than between um, the people of one country and the people of another, you know? So we're all people. But when you get power, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely, as what Lord Acton said, right? Um, so, um, or it usually does. Marcus Aurelius seemed to do a pretty good job with all that power. Shout out to Marcus Aurelius or whoever your reincarnation in this present lifetime might happen to be. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, simple water, get things in order. Uh, so I think what really prevents war is economic interdependence. So, oh, all of Europe isn't going to war anymore. I don't think that's because the United Nations or the European Union or, the, you know, they're all using the same currency. I think it's primarily, it's maybe secondarily, it's um, economic interdependence. So are we trading together? We make money from being together. So why would we go to war? I think that's got a, a powerful impact. And say America and China being connected that way, it maybe mitigates the chances of war. Um, um, but I think primarily it's information exchange. And so the internet and the, what we're doing here, like you're listening to me, you know, yakking on or whatever. Um, I do the same thing to other people, you know, and we share ideas. And um, you might be Greek or you might be um, Spanish. You might be from Sin Alpha Centauri and you're tuning in. And you're like, oh, yeah, he's got his points, whatever. And so we can kind of learn about the world more, but also we can see that people like, oh, Russians aren't like some crazy robots. Like I, I've taught like, you know, Russian kids. I know like Russian adults, stuff, lovely people, really nice people. I also know Americans, you know, and uh, Ukrainians and lovely people, you know, like I met people from China, lots of Chinese people, love them, great people, very nice. Japanese people, lovely. Koreans, lovely. Um, African people... South Americans, you know, I've been blessed to meet kind of because I teach English. Actually, I, I meet a lot of people even through the Internet from different countries. Um, everyone's very, you know, there's differences in culture for sure. But it's like friends. Everyone's got their kind of different point of view. Everyone's a bit different. And that's good. That's why we like it. You know, we don't want it to be all the same. They'll be boring. You want your friend to be different to you because it kind of that's part of the dynamic. But then ultimately, we're all the same. We're all much more similar than we are different. Um, so. Yeah, I think uh, through the internet and through information exchange in general, so the printing press helped this by spreading ideas, etc. we can come to realize, oh, people from other countries or other regions or whatever or other continents or other races, other religions, etc. they're actually pretty similar to us and they love their children too. Their children really love them and don't want them to get blown up. So why don't we not blow, blow each other up? Um, and I think that's what the real thing. Doesn't that make more sense? There's a... Rather than, oh, yeah, everyone would be killing each other, but, you know, we're just, the government's got a lot of guns, so it keeps them at bay, these hungry death machine humans. Mm. 
maybe like a tiny fraction of the population are death machines. But in general, no. If you're not in some cultish, you know, like a violence-worshipping um, kind of ideology, then in general, or if you're not like mentally ill, um, like an, a violent version of mentally ill, then yeah, the vast majority of people, I think we get along because we can see each other's humanity and each other's beauty. And you think about like cultures, I think when, we, when you can appreciate the beauty of another culture, beauty, you know, it's something very hard to explain. It's kind of like just a feeling, a sense. I think beauty might be the most important thing, like, I don't know, maybe more than love, maybe. I don't know. It seems kind of like almost very close to just life, like almost like you can't explain it. Um, so you're getting very close to the heart of things. And it's so incredibly positive, you know. Um, and like, which is a more pow- which is a more positive word, positivity or beauty? <laughs> which is a more beautiful word, positivity or beauty? Mm, who's winning this competition? Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, um, I think if you can, if there's a culture where you can't appreciate the beauty of that culture in that way, you're like, mm, kind of a bit weird. Don't really dig it. Maybe like try to like watch a movie from that from their culture, an independent, really good movie from that culture, or you know read their history, or like uh, listen to some music of theirs, or just talk to someone from there. Find some way to kind of get inside their heads, and it's really amazing. Like I remember, like I've said this before, but like Korea used to. I remember, I I'm um, someone that I think was like, yeah, I'm learning Korean, or um, uh, and uh, I thought like, oh yeah, well that's. Okay, I wouldn't be doing that. It's got no interest at all. Um, but then now, like having met Koreans and you know taught them and you know been taught by them, Uh What's how do you say? Anyang uh, hasayo. These things. Like it's like oh, I can feel the beauty of their culture. I can appreciate the, their way of doing things. You know, it's really interesting. Um, to the point where it would be you know an honor to be Korean. I'd be like wow, that'd be really cool. Same with Japanese and all these other cultures. So I think once you can appreciate the beauty of another culture, um, then that's kind of like, you know, the the death of um, hatred and the the ability to go to war if there was an aggravated situation. So I'd th- say so anyway. So I think micronations could uh, be with whole world could be micronations, and through increase the unparalleled, unprecedented. Um, information exchange we have i think that would be viable i don't think there would be war but you know you never know um now however um so but then you might think well economically so forget the military stuff then but what about economically how could uh isn't bigger country you know america's big and they're wealthy ish or at least you know the central bank connected cartels are um these days the middle class has been hollowed out pretty intensely wages have been uh, declining real wages when you account for inflation where they're printing all this more money so even if your wages going up they might actually be going they look like they're going up the number but if the value of your money is dropping faster then you're actually your wages are going down right um and if your wages aren't improving each year by the way your wages are going down because every government on earth i believe is uh inflating our money very foolishly into oblivion (laughs) for some reason seemingly because they're too indebted um probably because of rampant socialism, uh, road to hell paved with good intentions. Uh, now, while I turn super saiyan, if you're just getting the audio, you can't appreciate this, but I look like uh, Goku turning super saiyan right now. Um, due to the wonderful uh, gifts of Ray, 
the sun father. Um, so through my here window. Um, so, uh, yeah, you might say, okay, the military thing, fine, but economically aren't these countries better if they're um, better off if they're larger? And I think, you know, there probably is some truth to that to some extent because, like, think about economies of scale. Like, um, say the certain uh, cost you have to pay, right? Like, you have to pay, say if you go to a shop, you have to pay electricity, rent, um, maybe uh, wages for, you know, at least one person to be there, you know, welcoming people in, um, one accountant, whatever. And if you're suddenly you're selling X amount of products and you get X amount of, you know, Y amount of uh, profit, then um, <coughs> if you can start selling more products, like 10 times the amount of products, you can still do that without hiring any more workers or getting a new building, right? Then that's, you know, you can actually make more profit. You're, um, you're becoming more effective. Um, so it's not like you have to, your costs are going up proportionally. So you're actually getting closer to the sweet spot of like, yeah, maximum productivity. And then there'll be a point where like, okay, we can't really fit more products. So it's going to get squishy. Customers going to get annoyed that there's not much space in here or there's not, the staff are taking too long to talk to them. So we need to open up another store and then you'd be a little dip, but then you can do it again and you'll get up to an even better back to that primo point. And now you're making even more profit, you know, um, but you've, you've got this stable system and you're making more profit, you know? Um, <coughs> uh, so, and then also, when you get to larger scales, you can say, instead of, like, say my costs are X, let's say my costs are, I don't know, $1 million. Um, so, or let's say, um, yeah, there's certain costs you have to pay, um, and then to, for you to be happy, you need a certain amount of profit, right? So say you need, let's say you need a million dollars profit each year. Um, and then... You could get that by getting selling one million units for one um, and getting one dollar profit off each of those units, right? Or you could send ten million units, whatever it is, ten million bags or whatever, for ten cents profit each, and you're getting the same profit. Except you're going to be much more popular. People are going, "Oh my god, these bags are so cheap! Yeah, I want that." And then the, your competitors are going to have a problem competing with you, and so and in reality, you'd do it. It wouldn't be 10 times less, but you do it a bit less. And then maybe your competitors lower their prices so it doesn't work as much. Maybe they look, you know, but that's part of the thing, right? You can, economies of scale, you can, um, I believe that's the correct term. Um, you can, uh, you know, if you've got, you're selling things in larger volumes, it is easier to, um, to be competitive and to actually corner a market uh, and be profitable. So potentially that does happen to some extent with countries, um, however, I think, you know, there are many countries which are very small, like some of the most wealthy countries, like Singapore is tiny and it's very wealthy. Si uh, Switzerland is much bigger than Singapore, but it's still tiny by world standards. Very, very wealthy. Um, the city of London, another notorious independent state, uh, <laughs> is, uh, very wealthy. Um, and, uh, you know, so Vatican City, very wealthy. Um, is Washington DC an independent entity? I'm not sure actually. I wouldn't venture to make a guess there. Um, so, but, uh, you know, what's an, uh, and the, you know, there are other examples, but then there are examples of very small countries which are, uh, poor, you know? Um, so, you know, in like, I don't know, Ghana or like 
I don't know. Um, I'm not actually sure. I wouldn't want to cast, asper cast aspersions, but or like um, Costa Rica or something or Honduras. I don't think these are very wealthy countries or El Salvador or something. However, that comes into the problem, which we're going to mention a bit, probably very soon, of corruption, where it seems like a lot of these countries, if you look at, try to find a poor country that doesn't have endemic corruption in its uh, political class. Um, I don't think it exists, actually. So even like Somalia, well, there's, um, I believe there's corruption there, but definitely there's, you know, there are problems with warfare and, you know, extremist kind of violent um, groups. Um, and, you know, um, but, and then again, there are, you know, Somalia, say, is probably less in general, I think, a less fertile place than many countries. It's, there's a lot of desert there, although they do have some fertile areas, I believe. Um, but um, compared to a country like Switzerland, it's going to be a bit easier with, uh, or, I don't know, Russia, so all these forests and gold and minerals and stone and um, arable land, you know, oil, gas. So resources are going to make it easier. So there's a bit of, I guess, partly nations that would require uh, financial sustainability. But, I, um, but yes, um, but it, it seems like there is um it is viable for countries to be on their own small countries um especially i'm not sure if this is the best time to drop in this wild card but um in a forthcoming podcast uh i'm going to talk about economics and you know chiefly libertarianism which could be sometimes misunderstood people use that word to mean different things but libertarianism in the traditional sense of using it to mean something similar to classic british uh, liberalism or classic liberalism, meaning like free market economics or Austrian economics, where you have a limited government but very low taxation. So people get to keep basically all of the fruit of their labor, like no income tax at all. Imagine that. You don't have to worry. You have to pay tax. You don't have to fill in these crazy forms. You just work. If you make profit, you keep it. Um, however, the government will support you less. But you can support yourself because you're making all this money, right? Um, and less regulation, but so in theory, so the theory goes, um, it's easier for people to um, create or start businesses and so the, uh, all the things the government was giving you and you can't fire them, so sometimes they're lazy and inefficient and offer you products at a lower quality for a higher price um, on the free market due to ruthless competition. The people who are really, really dedicated and or good at it um, pretty quickly start um, gaining market share and expanding operations and then they offer a high quality service for a low price and you can use your money which you would have been paying on tax to go get what you need from them and this is what we were doing until pretty recently actually because the state wasn't powerful enough until pretty recently to be implementing socialism it began about a hundred years ago actually maybe a bit more and a, a smaller extent but um, but for hundreds and thousands of years there was no socialism, and yet the economy was growing. I wonder how that happened, if socialism is required for economic growth. But there is a place, of course, for a safety net, I think. But, you know, um, but that is, again, that's for next uh, another episode. But there is an argument to be made that um, if it is the case that um, uh, a lean government, uh, and not like, you know, Republicans in America, like, yeah, we need a lean government but keep giving subsidies to the oil companies and the grain manufacturers and keep, you know, you know, sending trillions of dollars into the military industrial complex, which we all have shares in 
And so we can bomb these third world countries and rebuild them in no bid contracts um, with through deals with the puppet dictators we just installed. Um, socialism for corporations is very rampant amongst people who are pretending to be libertarians, you know. Um, but like real libertarianism, where you're like saying, uh, you know, um, 80% less regulation, 80% um, less tax, but 80% less um, government spending. So you have a more private economy, like private citizens are doing all the things. Um, so that's the kind of more traditional way things have been through history. Um, there is an argument that if we had that traditional freedom with modern technology, that we'd actually have something we've never seen before, which would be insanely prolific uh, prosperity. Um, and and peace, a peaceful society because people, you know, wealthy enough that they don't need to be worrying uh, so much about, it, you know, and getting angry at each other and they can kind of have more time to think things through and become educated and reach out for the truth. Um, so there is an argument that, you know, micronations, like we could have Spain being like a kind of ceremonial thing and you have chop it up into all those little regions or all their own little country and the governments there run their police, they run the courts, they run the military, um, and they have like, you know, legislatures where they make rules. But basically the constitutions are set up so that the government actually can't do much. It's basically just maintaining the space for people to fairly cooperate and compete in the free market. And if you try to start assaulting people or killing people or doing anything where you're violating other people's sovereignty, you're going to get put in jail. Um, and if you try to have a mafia or, you know, like rob people, or then you're going to get put in jail but the government doesn't really do anything else. They kind of just, and they prevent other countries from coming in and doing the same thing on a larger level. Um, so they're just kind of keeping the peace. Uh, and then they do that, they could do that at a local level and it'd be the same thing. Like it doesn't, because if it's not the government that's driving economic growth, then why would you need a large nation? The, um, a small nation would be able to do the same thing because it's just they're micromanaging the security rather than macromanaging it. I guess the only potential reason for a larger nation would be if you think um, while you're doing this, some other country like China or something or Russia, which is very big, might send in people, um, agents to come in, come in and try to be a mafia and dominate and annex it de, de facto. Um, so you could make an argument, I suppose, that a larger state, while you're implementing libertarianism, would be better able to resist um, foreign forces coming in. Um, but you know, it seems like pretty unlikely. I mean, what are they going to be able to do? Like if you've got like a libertarian system, there's not much apparatus to hijack. So you can try to bring in your mafia, but then people go, Hey, if the community is strong enough, they can just say, Hey, we're not doing this. And you don't need that many police force, uh, police officers to fight a mafia. You just need to them to not be corrupt. How do you prevent them from being corrupt? Mm, good question. Um, that's, I guess, is it, that nature just leading us straight on to the next question. Well, let's see. Is there anything first to deal with before that? I would say in general, you know, for what it's worth, um, I think, yeah, like, you know, um, when so ideally if there was um, enough community and social and cultural health, um, we wouldn't need a state to be supporting us. And if we weren't paying so much taxation, we would have the funds to support our neighbors a lot more and people in other country, you know, countries or whatever, like um, foreign aid, we could just happily do it. Um, but um, due to a lot of the forces we've been un put under, intentionally and unintentionally, um, through the, la the recent history, um, 
there is a bit of a breakdown of social bonds, right? And um, atomization, people not being, not knowing their neighbors, not really kind of feeling like they're a sense of belonging to the people around them. Um, and so breakdown of family life, traditional family, fatherlessness, people being on their own. Um, and, um, you know, uh, all this kind of thing. So it creates a lot of problems. And so potentially there's a role for the state to enter in, at least temporarily, until we kind of can correct these patterns. Um, but I'd say in general, I think um, a minimal safety net would be ideal for, and then not to get too out of hand with it. And But the safety net's not the big thing. I mean, most of the, the waste comes in other things, right? Like bureaucracies, inefficient bureaucracies maintained by governments and just outright corruption, et cetera. Um, you know, giving deals to their friends who don't do the best job, but they, you know, they're your friend, they'll let you come to the party or whatever, and you scratch my back, I scratch yours, and the public suffers. But but yeah, so I think I, ideally I would say, the, 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 so that, but that's from an economic point of view, I was saying that limited government seems wise. Um, and so in that case, that would uh, mean where, you know, you could have micronations where, hey, we've got our own little identity here. Why aren't we allowed to make our own decisions? And I think this is an important principle. It's important to mention. I probably should have mentioned it earlier. I think ideally as uh, Jimmy, shout out to Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Georgiatis, I guess, is your family name? Um, uh, my, my bro, Andreas Georgiatis, um, his brother, Sasha's uncle, shout out to Sasha too. Um, uh, so he said something, you know, I think, oh no, it's, it's his friend. Okay, whatever. Anyway, everyone's cool. All good people. But like, um, said to me like, or mentioned like at some point, like he thinks the, the, the ideal would be that people, you have the smallest units possible managing their own decision-making, the smallest units of people, social, smallest social units. So localization, decentralization, because people have the maximum power to make their decisions. And both, this, uh, I think that's wise for a few reasons. One is they have the most information about what's happening. So many things, people can't keep track of everything at, like in the central government. So local people have the best information to, make, to know what the opportunities and the threats are and to act accordingly. And also, um, there's certain a lot of subjective things in life where it's not objective. It's like, well, it's your opinion. And generally, opinions are more co in a community, a small community. They're more likely to have a, to be able to agree on their opinions than if you zoom out and make it a, a bigger population of millions. And so it just makes sense. Like, well, if it's subjective, then just let them decide on their own. Why do we all twenty people need to decide what movie what movie we're going to watch? Why don't we just break that down into like, okay. We're all kind of like four different friend groups. Why don't we just each watch, decide what movie we want to watch? If some of us want to watch the same movie, all right, great. We can link up, you know, um, or just watch the same movie here and there. Great. We'll talk about it after. So, you know, it seems like there are benefits to localization of decision making. Um, and so, yeah, so there's, there's that um, from an economic point of view, but also in kind of like a, a moral or just... Um, kind of justice point of view of like what's right. Um, and then, uh, well, yeah, and in general, I think the, the state should have minimum power over citizens. Uh, as the American Constitution said, although it's serially broken, you might not be aware of this, like, oh, if the Constitution's broken, they would be fixed right away, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah? By who? By the, the judges, the judiciary. They would step in and send all the politicians to jail. They bring them to court and then if they're guilty, they send them to jail, right? And get new politicians in. 
hmm, what if there is another force outside of the politicians and the police and military, um, that would be the, uh, the executive, um, and also the politicians in the legislature, which is the, the lawmakers, which usually form the executive. So the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary, the judges. What if there's a, a fourth force, in theory we might call it corporations, uh, which over generations is exerting a continuous pressure upon all these parties. And so the judges, the politicians, um, and you know the, the executive or whatever, the ministers and the, the police and the military are all subject to that intergenerational influence because trusts get passed on, companies have lives longer than individuals, etc. and profit, the profit motive is ruthless and continuous. What if they, the judges could only get elected, you know, over generations, they've, the judges who were trying to get elected or the, the politicians who choose the judges, their election campaigns are being donated to more if they toe the line of the corporations what they want. In theory, that might lead to a situation where constitutional violations could occur and no one would be sent to prison and it would just become the norm and, in essence, the constitution would just change. Um, uh, and so it would be de facto change. Uh, amendments by corporate will. In theory, that has happened. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you know, there's many things like this. Like, um, so, um, but nonetheless, the, 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 what the word of the American Constitution is very beautiful. It basically says, we're giving these powers to the government, which are pretty minimal, just the absolute minimal thing, you know, that is required. Um, everything else, if it's not explicitly provided for here, the government doesn't have that power is an amazing thing to put into a constitution. And uh, they did that, not that, you know, it worked for a while, but then, you know, the power of money eventually took over. Um, but, and including taking over the media, and so that obscuring the fact that this has actually happened, not all the media, but the, you know, mainstream corporate media, legacy media, is largely owned by like six huge corporations, you know, like various different outlets are actually owned by the same people, BlackRock and Vanguard, you know, these huge corporations, they own like all these pharmaceutical companies or um, majority share stakes in them and media companies and tech companies, all this stuff, right? So there's this, again, intergenerational exercise of the profit motive at scale. Um, so, um, uh, but th that idea that um, the government can't do anything unless it's explicitly provided for in the constitution, I think that's the idea. That's right. You know, that's the best way to optimize the flourishing of a society. And the cool thing is it's win-win. Look, if there's any um, budding oligarchs out there or, you know, fully blooming oligarchs uh, listening to these words at any point, um, hey, you know, my brother or sister, uh, nothing personal. I appreciate you and all your good side. And I would encourage your negative side to grow into goodness. Um, but I understand some things are subjective. However, I really would... Um, pose it to you that um, your own flourishing, your own best world is actually achieved through our best world because you, you are us. We are us. I am you. He is. I am. He is. We are. He is. You are. We and she are all together. No, whatever it is. Um, so the, old, the best way to be selfish is actually to be selfless if you think about it enough. And... Um, if you're being selfish uh, with a lowercase s, then you're actually got an immature and uh, inefficient and um, uh, rudimentary 
method and uh, of selfishness with a capital S. And the real way to help yourself is to help everyone at the same time. How do I help me and the others at the same time? That's actually the most satisfying way for you because you are not your ego, you're not your mind, you're actually your soul and your ego will still be happy, but your soul will be happy as well. So you're going to be even happier. Um, and it's more sustainable and you won't get thrown in prison when if there's a, a righteous revolution at any point in theory. Um, and so, yeah, why not, right? And so I think the, the ideal way, yeah, is government can only do what it's expressly provided for. We have these constitutions set out and then government kind of has a pretty minimal role um, and the individual gets to express themselves. Think about it in terms of the rights, like politics, how or a political economy or political um, philosophy, right? What rights should the people have? Um, well, I think you should, they should have whatever rights they want to have so long as they're not taking, um, preventing other people from exercising their own rights, you know? So there's obviously going to be a little blurry area, uh, an overlap of the Venn diagram where our rights are going to conflict and they're mutually exclusive. But that's a very, that's a minimal thing. And that's what government's there to deal with and politics is there to deal with. Sort out the differences through talking instead of killing and fighting. Use words. Let our words and our ideas fight and die instead of us. Um, and so, but for the vast majority of things, it's very clear. Like, well, okay, this is uh, um, good. Uh, this is what I want to do and it's not hurting anybody else. So I should be allowed to do it. Oh, you want to take heroin? Okay, are you hurting anyone else? Well, no, it's just I'm doing it. You could argue that I'm hurting my relations by doing this, but, you know, that's very indirect. But Okay, well, let's say you can do it, you know, because that's your right to be, live as a human. I would argue that that's too distant to say that they're not allowed to do it. Um, even if they have a child, well, I'd say, no, they're allowed to do heroin um, because that's not directly hurting the child. Now, if they stop feeding the child, if they start being abusive to the child, that's, that's the thing you get them in trouble for not the heroin, right? So they, that's an extreme example I use just to make the point. If I can make that extreme example, I don't need to waste time making smaller examples, which you'll go, yeah, but what about heroin, right? So just to make that clear, I'm giving the edge case, the limit case. So I think basically, yeah, government should allow people to do whatever they want if they're not hurting others. And it seems that socialism is actually less efficient than, say, free market capitalism. Um, China's very powerful, but largely that's due to American corporations making their own profits through there. It's like a temporary um, marriage of convenience sort of thing. Over time, I think a free society would be far more efficient than, say, the communist um, or the fascist, actually. Not judging, although you know, I don't think it's very healthy, but that's just my opinion. I understand there could be healthy elements to the Chinese system. Um, for example, being strong so that they can't be colonized by the West or whatever, although perhaps they have been colonized from within by central banking cartels, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I would say it is fascism in China, the way they've got it, where there's a fusion of corporations and the state. It's like capitalist, but the state um, encourages cartels and oligarchies and uh, um, monopolies and oligopolies, where only a few companies or one company dominates each industry artificially because they've got government support rather than free competition and who can provide the best service at the lowest price that people pay for. You know, if you can't do, you can't give people what they want, they won't give you their money. You die. That's free market capitalism. It's beautiful. So you have to do good to, to gain ground unless you've got friends in the government. And so people often blame capitalism when they're actually should be blaming um, government 
um, crony capitalism, which is a type of socialism. But the government, because socialism is government involvement in the economy, basically. They're trying to, and under the aegis or the, the uh, alleged goal of helping everyone, you know, but, but you know, you can be uh, a socialist, a socialist philosophy of, yeah, I want to help other people. But that's not what I would mean and traditionally has been meant by socialism. Socialism would mean um, uh, you're forced uh, to give your money to the state and it spends it in certain ways rather than everyone spends their money how they will and that decentralized system of mutually beneficial and voluntary interactions, exchanges, trades, creates a a good, prosperous, peaceful society, which was the traditional case in in the West, by and large, not not completely. Um, But so... Yeah, I, I would say it seems that would be my hot take. Very hot indeed, given how like uh, <laughs> I can barely look into the, the the look forwards with this glorious light. Very good. So okay, um, so that was uh, the government relationship with the people, um, and yeah, of course, like say in a country like China. You can, if you're part of the, the, as far as I understand it, um, if you're politically connected, you can break the law and nothing happens to you. But then again, also in a country, you know, in Western countries, this seems to be the case where there's one set of laws for normal people and there's a different set of laws for the, the very wealthy, the billionaires, where they can basically do things and nothing happens. I think, didn't Dominic Strauss-Kahn, head of the IMF or whatever, like there was some pretty fishy seeming allegations, um, well, fishy-seeming situation and serious and genuine-seeming, I don't know, but genuine-seeming allegations that he had sexually assaulted a maid and she um, it, uh, was fighting the case and it looked like he was going to get in big trouble for a while. And then, as far as I understand, it kind of disappeared. It was thrown out of court eventually. And you see these things again and again where it seems like, you know, oh, yeah, there's no investigation or there's not enough evidence. And it's like, who... If you look at the people who would be prosecuting them, they are subject to the intergenerational influence of um, big money. And so it seems like actually that is happening in the West also at the highest level. So let's say, to be fair, China or the, the oligarchical level of the West or whatever, um, it's not right that um, there should be two sets of laws. That that's contradicts. Try to explain that. You know, If, if you really think that's, that I'm naive or something and that this is actually right well you should be able to explain it put it in the comments let me know i haven't been able to figure out any way to say that that makes sense unless you presume that you're a high made of a finer clay cut of a finer clay than normal people um but unless you've got some you know even if you've got some magical alien dna twirling through your body or some such you know madness whatever there's something i'm completely oblivious to um still like we're all human beings um and we're all beings we're all consciousness experiencing itself from the inside out in this glorious universe. So we're all equal. We've got different capacities. However, that's largely happenstance. Our ability to implement our will in each moment when we are here and when we are conscious is identical. So we are equal um, if you're talking about the true I, of, which is consciousness. So I think we should all be treated equally. Governments should be treating all people under the rule of law, respecting property rights, and should not be able to just intercede and help to pick winners and losers. Um, so, and yeah, and I would say a decentralized system at the end of the day is stronger than a centralized system 
both because it can, if it's attacked or if it um, by nature or another <coughs> political force or by a revolution from within or whatever, or a cultural crisis where it kind of disintegrates or balkanizes, meaning like falling into different pieces, um, you're going to have uh, that local leadership to start to take over again. Um, so if 50% of the, the country is ruined, um, a central government's probably going to collapse under that weight. But if you had 10 separate kind of regional governments, which, you know, um, majority uh, power of decision-making, then they will just kind of grow and fill up the rest of it, you know? So it seems like decentralized um, uh, organisms are more adaptive. Um, it seems like everything's ultimately decentralized, but like the, the political level, yeah, we we have uh, put power at the hands of these central centralized bureaucracies and it doesn't seem to have a great track record. <laughs> so um, maybe I need some sort of hat. Mm. Uh, or let me uh, see if I can close the curtains, good people. This is a bit intense. Oh. Oh, that's better. That is better. That's intense. Or maybe a little light. Yeah. Good enough. All right. So, back to business. Um, so, now, corruption. How do we stop corruption and oligarchy? I think, for one thing... Um, a large cause, I think, of where it comes from, um, oligarchy, meaning a group of people, not one dictator, but a group of people, like you know, a minority of the population, have kind of king-like control, like very significant political and financial might, so they can kind of control the outcome of the destiny of the country. So um, the way uh, to... I think the way that kind of happens is through hijacking the state. They start to expand the powers of the state and they buy them. They use money to control the people or choose the people who run the state that, they've, that has just been expanded. So you might have a good guy who expands the powers of a state. Oh, we're going to do these things. Well, watch out because who's going to have that when you're gone? Probably someone who's put in there by the, the people of the most money and power who generally... Um, don't have the a holistic perspective. Perhaps in ancient Egypt or something, or Atlantis or something, they did, you know, of like, oh, we're all together, um, benevolent dictatorship. Um, but not in this current state of global culture or whatever and consciousness. Um, so that seems like, it seems to me that um, the, the way to prevent... Like, I don't think monopolies can form in the absence of socialism and um, an expanding state. Because if you think of it, like, what happened to um, J.P. Morgan, I think, in the America in, like, the early 1900s, I think. Uh, his, his, well, maybe it was earlier, the 1800s or something. And again, I haven't done enough reading, but this is just my perspective. Think about it. I need, I'm, I'm doing my best to find time to keep reading and learning. And it's a, you know, work in progress. But... Um, at, the, at a minimum, this is food for thought, and it's more likely to be right than wrong, but it could be wrong. Okay, so I believe um, his oil, he had this 
you know, big oil business and he, you know, kind of outcompeted people and bought them out and was clever and et cetera. And then ended up with this kind of almost um, monopoly of oil. And then he suddenly jacked up the prices and really increased them. But then what happened is, so you might think, oh, that's why the government needs to come in and break them up. And they eventually did do that, I think, um, later on, um, like antitrust laws. And But then they all just act in co cooperation now and all their directorates are all interlocking directorates. The directors are all, you know, on sitting on both boards of both all these companies that were, are in theory separate or, you know, the majority shareholders are all Vanguard or BlackRock or whatever. So it doesn't really matter, right? But so that was the government solution. doesn't seem to have worked. Um, and then, and in any case, they'll go to the same social clubs probably. Um, but uh, so, but before that, um, as far as I understand it, what actually happened prior to that, much prior, I think, uh, was, so I think it was JP Morgan or, or the, Morgan, someone Morgan, right? Um, he increased all these pr the prices of his oil. And so everyone was forced to pay this. It was really hard. But then what happened is, the people, the smaller providers who are still paying it, uh, offering it at a reasonable price, people started to give them more money. They started to, oh, I'll, I'll go buy from you. And so they started to, oh, make more money, more money, right? And then eventually got enough, they've got enough capital or you've got economies of scale. Um, they're allowed to, able to offer it at a lower price even maybe. And they start to get more people going to them get, and then they can, you know, and maybe invest, they might for like a year, offer it a lower thing, get a lot of customers, and then open a new operation and then return it to the normal price or whatever, which people are still willing to pay good enough, you know, um, and whatever, they can start expanding in market share. And so you had all these small firms that started expanding in market share rapidly. Um, and so eventually, um, you know, Morgan started to see what was happening and had to lower his prices in order to prevent losing market share. That's capitalism. That wasn't a government intervention. That was just a decentralized network doing what it should do or doing what it does. Um, and so um, I think that would work in any situation. How, how could a monopoly form? Because if someone is offering a service and they put it at a really high price or it's a low quality service or the, the service is too low for the price or the price is too high, the quality of the, the good or service is too low and the price is too high, right? Um, it's not a reasonable balance of those two, you know? Um, so you might pay like a high price for a high quality or a low price for a low quality. But, you know, if it's like high, it's too high for the, the, the value you're getting, right? Um, then that's not good. But if it's a monopoly, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you need the government to help you. Or do you? What, I mean, if they're doing that, apart from there's probably going to be other people can just start start competition, right? Like, I'm going to start a firm doing the same thing, but offer it at a reasonable price. Everyone's going to give me their money because the people like keeping more money. Why wouldn't they just give me all their money? Oh, they don't trust you? Well, they like. What, what's going to have more psychological impact? Hey, I could save a bunch of money. Or, oh, I don't trust them. Do you trust the monopolist who's charging you lots and lots of money? So probably they'll at least consider it and um, they'll start growing market share, these other things, and eventually when they start getting 10%, 20%, 30%, the monopoly is going to have to go, I do not want to, this is just going to ruin me. I need to compete. I need to lower my prices. And they'll probably lower them really low to try to kill off the competition. But the memory of that monopolistic behavior will probably have stuck and so it probably wouldn't even work and that other people will still be able to survive 
even if people jumped on the bandwagon and went, oh yeah, back to the monopoly, and they wipe out the competition, the cycle will just repeat. Someone else will do it again, you know, a generation later. Um, so there's this monopoly can't get out of control. And, and um, I think over time people start going, getting the picture and go, look, screw these people. We don't, and you'd have, it would encourage over time the evolution of firms, like um, companies which are respecting the customers um, and offering good value for money. Um, now, uh, also, even uh, to make this even more likely, in my mind, what makes it even more plausible is that people working, I think a lot of this is prevented by regulation, which is actually coming from the state, and that is how monopolists use the state to prevent competition, is through regulation. They say, hey, you need to pay 50 grand to get a certificate to say that you can open a, a garage for cars, just to be safe. But wait, if I caused a problem, wouldn't I be liable under negligence law and... Wouldn't I go to like prison if I was negligent and whatever, or like you know, so or you know, be shut down? Well, yeah, but just to be safe, let's do a double level. But but this disincentivizes competition, is encouraging monopoly. Oh yeah, but no, I think it's good. You getting any money from these people? No, I'm not getting any. I'm busy. Got to go to a meeting. Um, so it seems like you know. Forgive me for being cynical, or. Um, you know, perhaps paying attention, but uh, it seems like this is a large part of where a lot of regulations come from. It is a way, look, everyone's like, oh, money is the root of all evil. Every, humans are selfish. Until you start talking about the powerful people, you go, oh yeah, these powerful institutions, maybe they're built upon this, this, this. And you go, whoa, conspiracy theorists, ease off. All right, well, I mean, well, uh, you know, you were just saying that human people are inherently selfish or whatever, and yet you seem reluctant to admit that maybe the profit motive wouldn't exercise itself into the field of regulation. So, you know, but like, uh, so, you know, something to think about. Um, and whereas, uh, yeah, but what makes it even more plausible in my mind that this would be, this would, this is how it would work is that say there is just one monopoly, right? Um, so they're there, um, and they are, you know, providing the service, say it's, um, Google doing what they do, or it's, um, farm you know farming conglomerate or whatever it is um people working for them can make more money if they go out on their own and become the boss right because th that's why people are the boss they get more money right so if you're at a certain level oh i'm an engineer and i work in an engineering firm or i'm an architect um if there was not so much regulation as i and i'm not an expert but I, as i understand it there is a lot of it's not just like some cliched thing people say i believe there actually is a lot of such amount of regulation that you would need lawyers and accountants, professional lawyers and accountants, you would need to pay them in order for you to start up your business a lot of the time and in order to avoid lawsuits. Again, also the judges being very, oh, yeah, yeah, you can get sued for that in, in ways which encourage monopoly, you know, um, rather than being like, well, you know, you can't be sued for that. You, you weren't negligent. That's ridiculous. You don't need a sign there saying don't jump off the cliff. That's ridiculous. You know, it seems like there's a lot of things encouraging, um, I don't know, lit litigation and a bloating of the legal profession. Why would they allow that? Well, it, more more jobs for lawyers, for one thing. I mean, maybe their nephew needs a job and there's not much going around. Oh, what if we expanded the laws a little bit? Maybe, I'm not saying it's a conscious process either. That might be an unconscious kind of thing that's happening, the legalization of society. Um, and legalization of society, <laughs> interesting. Uh, anyway, um, but... So these people working in these, you know, say an engineer who's working for someone else, 
once they've they've gone there, they've done their apprenticeship kind of process. They've gone through there, they've studied, and then they've got the real world work experience of ten years working there. They can do what anyone else can do. They're like, I know everything. They're like the Sith apprentice who's ready to chop off the head of the master. Like, you know, I've got all the stuff you've got to give. I'm pretty sure. They can just go off on their own and try their hand at their own little enterprise. And if they can offer the same, and they would do that by offering a lower price because they don't have a, a brand name yet. People don't know. They can't trust them. So they go, okay, the lower price, but I can't quite rely on them as much. But okay, I might take a chance. A certain amount of people will take a chance on them, and some of them are dodgy and they're not worth it, and people are going to get burnt, and that's that's how it works. Um, but probably most of them are going to be careful and do what they do it right because they want to succeed. The say the engineers in this example, and then they offer the same service for a lower price, and so they start to grow in market share. The big monopoly thing has to lower, go down to compete with it. And it's not competing out to one of these things. You could have dozens or hundreds of these things going out and you know that would be a natural process. So this is the thing. People think, oh, the invisible hand or like free market economics, you know, excuse me while I you know, roll my eyes dramatically. It's like if you think about it, um, you, know, you don't roll your eyes at how your, you know, your liver functions without you telling it what to do. Why do we assume you would need like this centralized authority to run a society um, in in every degree? It seems like what we need is we need a centralized authority to prevent people killing each other, um, because a certain you only need a minority of people to become to want to be a mafia, and then you've got a big problem. So it does seem like at this stage in human history, it is required to have a certain uh, monopoly of force um, to prevent mafias and you know foreign states and whatever taking over the society. Um, and just creating their own new state. Um, but eventually, I think we'll get to a level of consciousness where we, we don't need that, right? We can have pure anarchy, basically, like in a positive sense, where or anarcho-capitalism, where people can just trade, you could have your own security people if you need, um, but instead of paying taxes to a centralized um, authority who then runs security, um, you just have, you know, pay firms who offer security. And that uh, if enough, if 99% of the population is kind of enlightened, so to speak, then that would be manageable because it's going to be very unlikely that these firms are going to get out of control because everyone's just chill, smiling, shining-eyed Buddhists. Um, but uh, I think that's a while off. You know, that's not like tomorrow. You know, so I think libertarians don't get too. You know, um, you're onto something, but don't don't take that too far. Don't let the pendulum swing too far the other side, as it usually does, as we're finding balance bit by bit. Um, I think at this point in history, we need the state, but we need it to be very lean. And then that's how we grow to the next stage where people will be able to be more prosperous, more peaceful, and thus more become more perceptive, uh, more powerful in consciousness. It's using all these P words, but um, through, you know, um, less strife, we'll be able to become self-actualized and reach a high level of consciousness. That will allow us to shrink the state even more, probably, et cetera. Um, but it won't be like an overnight thing. It'll be a transition where you're, okay, you're lowering taxes and regulation, okay, and then you allow the economy to grow. You might, your debt might increase a bit, but you allow the economy to grow, and then you cut government spending, and you let the economy growing to kind of pay off that debt. You'd have a process of, like, contractions, maybe, as you're giving birth to this thing. Um, but I think uh, you would need a um, police force and military to protect the system, especially because this isn't going to happen everywhere simultaneously. No way. You're going to have other forces trying to take over and going, ah, hey, look, they're trying something. 
And if it start, if it, especially if it starts really working and paying off, like ten years down the road, like say if we try that in Ireland, and then it starts Ireland's income incredibly successful, the European Union's not going to be happy about that. They can be like, well, they wouldn't let it happen. But say there was a secession from the European Union, um, and this started happening, they go, oh, we got to shut it down. Otherwise, we're going to have nothing tomorrow. Everyone's going to leave us. They're going to try to um, smear it and make it look bad and shut it down. So you would need um, a conscious population, educated population, a cult. This all stands on the shoulders of consciousness, um, which um, on the shoulders of uh, culture and awareness, uh, well, culture and yeah, understanding and education, which ultimately really comes down to individual consciousness and good conversations, like we're trying to have here, you know. Um, so, um, and decentralized um, process of sharing information and perspectives and working upon our own consciousness and trying to digest and integrate all this information and try to figure out what's real and what's right. Um, and then we can spread that outward after digesting it and repeat the feedback loop um, and start to raise our consciousness, become more aware of what's right and what's useful, etc. And uh, then with that, the protection of consciousness is the ultimate power, you know, um, just like the most prized uh, commodity in the world is data. Essentially, that's um, eyeballs. Actually, it's not data. It's um, or data. It's um, awareness or attention. Where are people putting their awareness, their attention? Because that is the mind. That's the soul. Everything you're doing, it comes down to your attention, your awareness. And so that's the, such is the power of consciousness. So if you don't believe me, think about how much money is involved in this. This is a very powerful thing. Um, even from this you know, very superficial, cynical point of view, you'd have to admit there is power in this, in attention and in consciousness. And so if we can use that power to become aware of what's actually going on and what should be going on, um, then what are, where our problems come from and where the solutions thus will come from or, or probably come from and we can kind of figure out, start, we don't need to agree on everything, but if we can agree on like a significant minority of things and continue to iron out the rest of it, we can start implementing the simple things we all agree on. And there's a lot of that. Um, and then why don't we all pay less taxes and we just shrink these inefficient, tyrannical bureaucracies? Well, that sounds all right. Uh, okay, there's going to be a... a defense mechanism built into the bureaucracies so um, to prevent against that we need mass public consciousness at least a significant minority of the population 10% or something needs to be very clued on and um, throughout history that's all it takes really like a, a very dedicated and um, aware minority it's not majorities who lead revolutions um, peaceful revolutions of course ideally um, and less in self-defense but ideally peaceful why not we're all brothers and sisters let's not fight let's be friends um, and so, uh, yes, so via, um, mass public consciousness and, you know, kind of cultural rebirth through understanding these ideas of, okay, in this time, what do we need to do to, cause like we're in a mess, right? Everyone can feel it, you know, the sense everything's kind of going along nicely. Everything's moving in a good direction. Would you agree? Hmm. Not many people will agree with that. I had that feeling, I remember when I was a little kid, I felt like, oh, the West is this beautiful place. Everything's kind of growing and going in this nice direction. How wonderful. And 9-11 happened and the thing started to go pear-shaped. Um, in the 90s, there's this feeling of like, oh, wow, we're the good guys. We're doing what's right. We have the right system. There's all these crazy people in these other countries who are so unfortunate. They're just shooting themselves in the foot. We figured out the system where we just do what's right and what's based upon what's true. And, you know, it's amazing. Well, actually, that was a bit of an illusion, um, partly, you know. Um, a lot of good things for the West, but you know, built up. there's also a lot of bad things built into it, but 
whatever, yin and yang, you know. Um, nonetheless, like, uh, you know, I think we can agree that things aren't going in a sustainable direction. Um, and so we need a pivot. So we need this cultural reawakening uh, to taking in, and this happens throughout history. It's not the first time, won't be the last, right? Um, but going like what's happening and what, what are our problems? Where are they coming from? How do we solve them? And agree on a minority of that stuff, start implementing through our consciousness, we'll be protected. And then also through, um, what was I going to say? The other thing, um, take a glass of water might help me. Um, yeah, through, um, the, the fledgling state or states, which are, um, beginning to move toward libertarianism, um, or whatever, some, whatever word you want to use for that, but you know, like kind of limiting the power of the state basically, and, um, increasing the power of the individual, um, freedom over, um, totalitarianism, um, those, uh, polities, those regions where this, this sort of political system is being uh, implemented by the population due to mass public awareness and protests or like activism and campaigning and basically conversations and awareness, people registering the idea of, Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. You know, that happening over and over and over again, millions of times, um, millions of people, millions of times, you know, hundreds of thousands of times at each person, you know, um, you have this change that happens because we naturally, as a result of that change in consciousness, it can't stay the same, you know? Um, and, but yeah, so you would need a strong military and police force to maintain order against, and strong, more important than that, strong consciousness, which is also going to keep, because that's going to keep control over the police and the military and the judges and the politicians, and the ministers, etc., the bureaucrats, the deep state, the bureaucrats who aren't elected and they're just always there, and we're shrinking. They're not going to be liking that, probably, a lot of them. Although we'll be in their long-term interest, for sure, because they're going to live in a better, happier society, a more beautiful place. They're going to have better jobs. They're going to be able to do more meaningful work and actually be uplifting the world more, which is probably what a lot of them want to do, but maybe didn't, don't understand what's actually happening due to their actions. Um, but uh, so this consciousness, we preventing the executive from shutting down the benevolent revolution and also preventing other political entities from outside, um, foreign entities from shutting down the, the revolution. So you would need, I think, um, monopoly of power, uh, of uh, monopoly of the, the legitimate use of violence, as in political science it's put, which is basically what a government is. Um, someone, uh, a group that um, possesses a monopoly over the legitimate means of violence. So, and then down the line, you know, we can maybe limit that or whatever. Um, so... But so, but so that's kind of talking about moving away from oligarchy, like minimizing the uh, the um, the size of the state um, and of regulations. Some regulations are needed, but I think, like, say for example, oh, wouldn't you know people just start polluting rivers? Hey, I don't want rivers to be polluted. I love Mother Nature, you know. Um, so, but I think the real way to do that, I think, would just be through, I mean, like law, like tort law, like neg negligence law. I don't know if it applies to like um, that kind of level, but I, it should, I think, like um, naturally. Because, for example, if I am negligent and I hurt you in some way or I kill you or whatever, I cause some harm to someone, if, if it was reasonably foreseeable to the average person that 
like if the reasonable man, if it would be reasonably foreseeable to the reasonable person, I think is the phrase, um, that it would cause harm, that it was likely to cause harm, then you, it doesn't matter if you didn't actually realize what you're doing. It's called negligence and you are still accountable. And that deters, it's like, it's not just your intentions, it's also the result. It's like a balance of these, right? Which is probably fair. I think that's kind of like ethics. Virtue ethics, like do what's your intentions, um, virtues, balance between two vices. Be courageous. Don't be a coward. Don't be reckless. Somewhere in the middle, right? For every quality. Kindness. Don't be, you know, spineless. Don't be mean. Kindness in the middle. Whatever. Virtues. But also there is the utilitarian aspect of like the results of your actions. Um, you know, I can have good intentions, but if I'm causing bad results, I can't say, oh, no, no, I don't want to be punished. I'm a good guy. Yeah, but just deal. Maybe you're going to deal with the disincentive of this. It's going to be uncomfortable for you. But on some deep level, that's probably going to give you feedback you need. Um, and in general, in society, people will look and go, oh, that wasn't good. And it's going to cause ripple effects, di disincentivizing that behavior. If we didn't do it, it might cause things to get out of control just because everyone has good intentions or pretends to at least. So that's a balance there between thinking about intentions and results. Same thing is with negligence law or tort law. Torts. So um, I would think like if a company pollutes a river, even if it's an accident, that is, um, they are negligent. They're being negligent, right? Of course, it's going to hurt other people. Um, even if it's indirect, I think we need to recognize, hey, look, that's going to hurt all these babies who are drinking the water and they're going to have maybe psychological problems due to it and then that's going to cause other problems. Da, 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 da. So I think if we, now, of course, you can't take that too far where people are getting in trouble for things they couldn't foresee. But again, if it's reasonably foreseeable that their, their average reasonable person would say, yeah, that's likely to cause damage, then I think that covers environmental problems. Um, so I would say with that, we don't need reams of re regulations which no one can understand. And it's like ignorance of the law is no uh, excuse. That makes sense when there's only, you know, 30 laws. What are we, when there's 30,000 laws? How does that make any sense? You know, oh, we're going to play a game. Ignorance of the rules is no excuse. You lose. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on, man. That's not fair. Um, so... Um, now corruption though, so that would be minimizing oligarchy and in general. Now corruption, I think a lot of corruption comes through, yeah, other kind of uh, uh, misadventures of the state, like the war on drugs cause enormous police corruption because they're incentivized to accept organized crime are incentivized. Oh, we can make a lot of money by selling this stuff. So instead of legitimate businesses doing it, they can sell it for 10 times the price or whatever more, you know, whatever it is, and make money. They organize crime, and they start fighting each other for territory, violence, bystanders getting killed, etc. Um, young people joining them for status or for money because the other jobs they can't, they can't, you know, like oh, I can get my money doing this. Leads people down a dark path um, of criminality, um, and also they, the criminal uh, organized crime are incentivized to corrupt the police. Hey, police, take this money. We know you're not paid that well, right? We'll give you this money and you just turn a blind eye and we can do our thing. We're just selling drugs. We're not hurting anyone really. And they go, okay, sure. My family's going to be happy. I can do this. They don't even need to know what I'm doing. And say you say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then all your, the other, you know, 30% of the police force starts doing it. You go, hmm, my wife's kind of like, I would like to take care of my wife and my family. I mean, if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Why don't I just do it? So you have this corruption spreading due to the illegalization of drugs. Look at my episode 11, Surrendering the War on Drugs. If you want to see my ideas for why I think, I'm pretty sure, I mean, what do I know? But 
as far as I can tell, thinking it through pretty carefully, it seems like legalizing drugs is just like a shortcut to a lot of success and a lot of what we're talking about, getting ourselves out of our problems. It's actually, um, I don't see any real argument against it. Um, if you do, please let me know. Please, I really want to know. Um, so now, um, so yeah, corruption spreads through a lot of these state actions where it backfires. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, yeah, like um, when, you know, people are always going to try to pay off politicians to do what they want. But think about it. If the politicians and the ministers, you know, like, you know, they're the politicians who become part of the executive um, and uh, the um, police and the, the, the judges um, uh, and the military, um, like if all uh, the, the, the government, the arms of, or, and the bureaucracy, right, the government, if they, if the government has less in, uh, influence over the society, has less power, there's less opportunity or less reason for people to want to bribe them and get them to do what they want because they they can't do what you want. Give them all the money you want. They haven't got the power. So if the police, you know, if the government no longer has the power to, um, say, regulate, um, you know, who can start a business in a certain thing, anyone can start a business. They just do it. Um, and, you know, if uh, they do a, provide a bad service, people will realize pretty quick on the internet, there's going to be all these trust pilot websites, et cetera, saying, yeah, they're sh terrible, you know, and you're going to go bankrupt real quick. Um, uh, or if you ha harm people, then you're going to get, you know, in trouble with the law for in harming people. And so you can be very careful. And even if you do it, even if it happens, even though you've been careful, um, you're still going to get in trouble due to negligence law. Um, so we don't need regulation. It just happens. If the government isn't able to prohibit people from starting businesses through regulation, um, they don't have that power then there's not going to be any brown paper envelope stuffed with cash coming from, say, those industries trying to keep, you know, um, forgive me for being so cynical, but just bear with me. Does it, you know, probably happens to some extent, at least in some parts of the economy. Um, and, or perhaps through influence, if not money or whatever. Um, then, uh, you know, um, they're not going to give that, that, that money because you know, they're not getting anything out of the bargain. They might try to restart it, but that's the whole point of what we're saying. It's like, that's not an argument against this. That's an argument for this. That's what, that's the only thing they can do is try to balloon the state again. If we shrink the state, that's, that's directly shrinking corruption because there's very little opportunity for it. Um, you don't really have corrupt businesses because you just don't give them your money. If they're a monopoly supported by the state, they could get corrupt, but corruption really is a state thing, right? So if the, the government is just lean and small and basically they prevent people from robbing and raping and defrauding and killing um, and assaulting, et cetera, other people um, or from other countries coming in and hurting us or taking our freedom, the military. Um, if, and then the, the, you know, maybe the certain things, certain regulations which are required from time to time as technology increases politicians go okay yeah we think about this carefully and yeah we think you know there is some regulation needed on this thing uh, or whatever and the public would be need to be very conscious and careful again it all comes down to the government can't fix your problems culture and consciousness is the only way um uh, and culture comes from consciousness downstream from consciousness um your consciousness individual consciousness right um possibly 
uh, collective divine grace also, but you know, well, I would say actually, yes, <laughs> but, but anyway, um, for our intents and purposes, let's assume it's a personal individual consciousness alone. Um, so we don't get complacent. Um, and, uh, so then, uh, yeah, if, if, if it's just protecting, you know, the, the rule of law and saying, yeah, you can do whatever you want, you work, you keep the fruits of your labor, but we're just protect, preventing people from, um, violating each other's freedom. That's all we do really. And the judges, you know, interpret the law of like, make, to make sure that the state doesn't start growing again. Um, and you know, the politicians try to do the same thing, say, this guy is trying to advocate growing the state again. Look at this snake in the grass. And you know, that's their jobs to basically keep the government small and to make sure that no one is violating people's freedom, including the government itself and the state and, um, and the bureaucrats who are unelected and who are there long after politicians leave, making sure that this is all minimized. So if they're doing that, then what corruption could there be? I don't see how there could be any corruption in the society. Like, in the terms of what we would normally say. So this is yet another reason why I would say a uh, uh, libertarian state seems to be the way of the future. Um, and with modern technology and traditional freedom, again, who knows what we could create. We will create, God willing. Um, also, one little comment about um, democracy. I think uh, democracy has its place, you know, like the, the rule of the majority. But what if the majority is wrong, you know? Like, especially if there's brainwashing, like propaganda then not necessarily a good idea, you know? Um, like, uh, I can tell you, um, uh, what? Yeah, actually, oh, oh my God. Uh, yeah, like, uh, I didn't take a certain medical procedure. I guess I'll be mentioning it soon. I don't want to, I don't want to mention this one because on YouTube it might get, like, pulled or something, but um, such is the state of censorship. Um, I didn't take a certain medical procedure uh, recently, which was strongly advised by the relevant authorities um, who seem to not be up to date on science of health um, to a large degree because they didn't mention the Wim Hof method, vitamin D, um, you know, in general, a, health, a healthy lifestyle um, as a way to boost your immune system. Um, but uh, if uh, it was the rule of the majority, perhaps I could have been compelled to do that. So I'm happy that Democracy has its place, but a republic really, I think, is the, the way to go, whereby the difference being there are certain rights which are enshrined and there are certain, basically it says the government can do these certain things and it's a limited thing. Everything else you can do, whatever you want, you've got rights. Um, but the government has a certain province of what it's going to work on. Maybe it's working on roads, or maybe that's privatized, you know, whatever. But whatever it is that a certain, and probably will be a transition if, you know, the way I see it happening, ideally, again, hey, it's probably not the way I see it because what do I know? But I think maybe it's something similar to what I see, you know, because I think about it a lot. So I don't know. It seems like it seems to make sense to me. But nonetheless, this transition toward a libertarian-esque sort of economy and society where there's more private citizens having more power over our own lives uh, and cooperating and competing in ways which are mutually beneficial, um, as it used to be traditionally, but with modern technology, supercharging it. Sound kind of bit nice, knee-jerk reactions receding, yeah, maybe, my friends. Um, then I think uh, I need some more water to complete my thought. Oh, that juicy thought nectar. Okay, so um, <laughs> what was I saying? Um, so, yeah, republic. Um, uh, if the, the government 
uh, is is more restricted, like in in its ambit of what it, it covers, um, then I think then that's where democracy can come into play. Of like, okay, well, what color flag? What kind of flag do we want? Right? Let's have a vote on it. You know, or like, oh, um, what should what should the the tax on um, imports or whatever it is. Say certain taxes we need to run a small number of taxes, not income tax, not needed, right? But uh, a certain, you know, certain taxes would, or tariffs or whatever would be needed to finance um, the the state, unless we make it voluntary eventually, which could be an interesting idea. It's in our self interest to maintain this thing, so we could make it voluntary contributions. If they start getting corrupt, start withholding the money and putting it into our own protection thing. But whatever, that's another conversation. But um, but the idea of uh, so, uh, you know, you'd need some taxes, minimal taxes, to pay for the the judges, the politicians, ministers, bureaucrats, police, um, etc. Maybe a few other government positions. <coughs> um, then, you know, uh, we can have a democracy over, over whatever uh, certain things that they they're deciding. Like, okay, how much how much should that tax be? What percentage? Okay, we can try to figure that out. Or we have we have democracy to elect the politicians, basically. And then, so one politician says, I think it should be this percent. The other person says, no, from what I understand, this is better. And we go, who do we trust? Who seems like they know more what they're talking about? And we vote for them. But have democracy over everything, I think, is not the way. Because in general, you know, how many people, um, how many people are expert musicians? How many people are expert gardeners? How many people are expert... Mothers, how many ex people are expert experts? Ooh. Well, the, the expert experts maybe aren't real experts. Um, how many people are experts in history or whatever? How many people are experts in thinking about the complex pro problems and solutions a society faces at any given point in time? A minority is the answer to all these questions. And it's not elitist. In a way, you could say it is, but it's not like in a negative way. It's just the way it is. It's just that's beautiful. We specialize. That's the whole thing. That's what's a whole part of our adaptability and why we're so good is humans can adapt um, and specialize in certain things. And through cooperation um, and competition, um, we can share these. And again, we're doing the same things, but at a higher level, higher quality, right? As we kind of mentioned before in a different context. So, yeah. Now, um, I got to get going. Um, you're going to miss my train. You're going to miss that plane. Great movie. Was that before sun? set um before sunrise one of those um so oh yeah world peace and prosperity oh yeah very simple altogether yeah no. um inner peace brings outer peace i think so that's the main thing is just becoming more aware of who we are that we are the universe living itself that i'm not my body i'm not you know my head or you look in the mirror oh there's me you close your eyes who am i it doesn't really look the same, actually. I kind of have a different idea in my head, you know. But then I see my face, and go, oh, yeah, there I am. But, you know, um, you're not your body, you're not your mind. These things, the body changes every 10 years, all the cells are replaced, you know, even faster for many parts of the body, like the tongue or something changes all the time. Um, and uh, your mind, you know, changes thought to thought. Your opinions change, your perspective change, your behaviors change, um, your emotional kind of nature changes. <clears throat> um, what is stable? The stable sense of self is consciousness. Or the space, the emptiness, the space of consciousness, which I don't understand how this works yet. Hoping to get there, God willing, the grace of evolution. But um, 
seems to be basically the, the emptiness of the universe itself is what we are. In some way, we're branches of the tree of life, but that em creative emptiness, that womb, productive womb of um, the void, which created the whole universe, seems to be what we are on a smaller level, and we can create things when we are conscious and we are disidentified from our thoughts and we're just in the moment, in the now, and understanding that we are one with everything. Um, and then, so from that place, there is great peace accessible, complete peace. And um, you don't need to completely get on board with the, you know, all of that, right? And there's many roads up the mountain, right? I'm sure there's disagreements on certain aspects of this. But in a nutshell, um, by being able to, like episode seven, awakening, you know, you, you know, getting um, of this podcast, you can look at if you want um, or listen to. But basically um, by living in the here and now and going, okay, may, the serenity prayer, right? Basically, may I have the courage to control or change the things that I can, the serenity to accept the things that I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. So this here is a little triangular three-part recipe for peace, right? If we have that individually, then we'll have peaceful interactions. Even if we can have that just more of the time than we currently do, we're going to start to have more peaceful interactions in our social networks, and um, cities are going to be more, and countries are going to experience that because all the, the members of these cities and countries are becoming more peaceful. So that's ultimately the direct route. But more uh, less directly, I think nations will need to maintain significant militaries, but diplomacy is the main way to avoid um, war. Make, helping people see your beauty and see who we are and to be able to see them, reciprocate, be the change you want to see in the world. Um, and, you know, exchanges of movies, have things, engage in their culture and go, yeah, I love that. We have this thing. What about this? We want... You know, where imagine world leaders had night movie nights where they shared independent film from their countries, you know, to try to, you know, empathize more. Um, and uh, this is highly revolutionary. <laughs> this is the most revolutionary thing I've ever said, probably. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, you know, diplomacy, but also, and fairness, you know, um, but then also you do need to, I think, at this stage in history, maintain that foundation of uh, military strength but nowhere near what the U.S. has. Like, they spend more each year on military than all the other countries combined. That's unnecessary, right? And it's not sustainable. The U.S. is in, unfortunately, a bad place, largely because of this, I would say. Um, more because of rampant socialism, especially for corporations. But nonetheless, central banking, destabilizing the currency, you know, taking them off the gold standard, um, infringing the Constitution and individual freedoms, raising taxes, all these problems, and the cultural degradation that's kind of come from a lot of these things and in general losing touch with the ethic of individualism and freedom and also perhaps touch with the wider world, a bit of a bubble. Ah, maybe that's another episode. But in a nutshell, um, doing great things, but, you know, there's got some troubled country, unfortunately, you know, but got a lot of potential. Shout out to America. Thank you for all the good things you give us and we forgive you for all the bad stuff. No worries. We're all on the same team, right? Um, team people, team humanity, team earth, team nature, Team universe. So, team life. Um, so, but I think, uh, yeah, you do need that military strength to some degree. Just to, why not? You know, just maintain, just to avoid, we, with these ideas, pretty revolutionary. If you're going to do it, you need to keep it, like, grounded in reality. You, you need to keep the, the cops and the soldiers or whatever, you know, just for now, at least, you know. Maybe one day we can have, and then, look, one world government, not now, not yet. No, 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 no. That's just going to be a, a dictatorship of the corporations. That's not what we want. World Economic Forum, sorry guys, not down for it, right? 
that's not going to be um, beneficial. It's not even, there's so many problems where they've proven their inability to understand the real solutions. And so you need a decentralized network of problem solving to find the real solutions, not people who have the fanciest suits and went to the best schools and had the richest dads and think they know best, but actually people who can prove it in open conversation. So if you can put in the comments and prove me why I'm wrong, please do. And hey, I'll admit you're right. But I'm from, you know, middle class, not, you know, nothing really special, but, you know, like I have a dedication to the truth. And so I think from my point of view, that is the way we all share ideas and try to get, get our egos out of the way and decentralize systems, probably smaller nations rather than bigger ones. But um, in general, keeping stability, like why break up the USA if it's not necessary? Why break up Spain if it's not necessary? May, live and make do. And just if we can shrink the, the size of the states, um, power, then it won't really matter so much. The Catalonia won't feel so oppressed if the Spanish government is barely doing anything, you know? And so that should be fine. Um, but, you know, if people want to, then, as we mentioned, there are some reasons why you might consider Czechoslovakia, you might turn into Czechia or Bohemia. Shout out to Bohemia, much love. Uh, and uh, uh, Slovakia, right? So that could happen. But in general, keep stability, whatever feels right. Maybe Tibet, maybe we could let Tibet be free, huh? That could be nice. Um, seems like they would deserve it seem culturally dissimilar enough from the CCP's, you know, um, enterprise. But um, let me know in the comments, should Tibet be free? Um, and uh, Hong Kong, for that matter, too. Um, but uh, which should be more free, the Vatican or Hong Kong? <laughs> let me know. Um, and uh, uh, so what was I saying? Um, so yes, the, the, the size of the states. Um, so uh, yeah, we don't want one world government, um, believe it or not. And even the European Union, I think um, in general, an unhealthy force. I used to think, oh, amazing, so good, it's preventing war. I don't think it's preventing war. I think that's information exchange and cultural exchange and economic inter interdependence, which doesn't require centralized bureaucracy. You may not be aware, the European Union is not a uh, democratic it's a very powerful institution. It's not democratic. The decision makers are not elected. Um, the uh, the um, so the, the the people who make the laws um, and the people who are elected they can um, consider the law and I think maybe they can um, propose amendments, but they don't have ultimate power. Um, either way, I can't exactly remember how it works, but the people who actually make the decisions over what laws become power are unelected. It's bureaucrats, so it's a dictatorship. Um, what would be really great is if we transitioned the European Union into a more like cultural body and if it was um, maybe minimal, it could be governmental, but minimal, like where um, it's decentralized. So people, the nation state's law has supremacy over the, the EU law, whereas at the moment it's the other way around. So if we just made that one change, that would probably fix everything actually. Um, so maybe nation states could have referenda where they say, yeah, we're proposing we're going to flip that arrangement. So our national law has supremacy over EU law. That would probably fix everything in one fell swoop. Although the EU might try to invade you, so you better have your cards in order and your co public consciousness savvy enough. Um, so um, to protect the good people because they're going to start getting smeared um, in that scenario. Um, and yeah, so world peace, prosperity, I think... If we can get into nations, and we need to hold on to nation states because they're being under attack at the moment, as like, oh, they're archaic, and we want this, you know, one world thing or whatever, you know, no borders, we should be together. That's like, you know, um, a sleight of hand and a red herring. This is corporations, um, bit like, you know, believe it or not, it seems like basically there's a corporate takeover of power on planet Earth. Like the WEF, look at the Great Reset, do a bit of research. 
not like some conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory. It's just like happening, you know, and not, you know, like, I don't know all the details, but, um, but I don't, it doesn't seem to be working anyway, but, um, but, and a lot, cause a lot of people are going, wait, what are you people trying to do? Are you serious? Is this actually happening? Um, but, uh, so we don't need the World Health Organization or WEF or CCP or whatever, or, you know, uh, the Bank for International Settlements or whatever, these huge international organizations r running our lives. We need, if we're not hurting anyone, we can do whatever we want. We have free markets and we can increase prosperity and, um, and thus prosperous people are easier to be at peace. And uh, we can have more books, more time for education. We can become more conscious. We live together in peace and harmony evermore. Amen. Um, okay, I'm off to work. Much love. <laughs>